Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Although there is limited crossover between interest in this podcast and my music podcast, Pretty Good Vibrations, despite, I think, a very good title for that music podcast, uh, I'm fine with that limited uh, overlap. However, some topics just are perfect to cover on both, and I think that this is one of them. We're going to hear a lot of music clips today. But I'm also going to do quite a bit of sociology, and we're going to talk about psychology, plausibility structures, all this kind of thing, as well as sort of the socio-political development of white evangelical Protestantism. If you really dig this episode and you like hearing the clips and the sort of musical analysis being included as well, then you might head over to Pretty Good Vibrations and check out some more of those episodes. But if not, no big deal. This podcast is still my primary uh, work, public work, and will continue to be. But it's really fun doing the music stuff as well and and interesting and and creative. So thanks for giving it a shot. And let's just dive in. Lindsay Strand again. Thanks for being here with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. I think that this is our first main feed episode together, unless I'm missing something. You've been on the patron feed for You Have Vibrations at, oh wow, there's a first, for first you Freudian slip. You have vibrations. You have vibrations. I do, I, do. I really have them. Uh, the you have permission patron feed at least twice, maybe three times, and then we've also done like a, we did a Black Sheep um, youth group fantasy draft episode together. Uh, CCM fantasy draft. A CCM fantasy draft. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that was actually, epic. that's kind of part of the, really the, the origin story of pretty good vibrations, sort of some of the gamier formats, like the tournament stuff. Um, so thanks for being a part of all of that. And, and for joining me again for our most ambitious project to date, which is a dual feed uh, episode for you have permission and pretty good vibrations. Thanks so much. Of course. I feel like you and I could talk music together forever. The, the basic background is that we became friends around 2005 when my old band Sherwood signed to the record label Sideshow Records that you were working at. And yep. 
so now we've been friends for 18 years and I'm, and I love it. I'm going to try and lead us through something that makes sense for both of these podcast feeds. Uh, and people, listeners can decide if they think that I have succeeded. But as far as the topic goes, the music of the Jesus movement, which peaks around 1971-72, is really a good candidate for a topic that would work about both shows. Because on Pretty Good Vibrations, what I'm interested in is the role that music plays in our lives. And this music played a massive role in my parents' lives, your parents' lives, the average you have permissioner, you have permission listener, their parents' lives. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone sort of raised around evangelicalism, this music is a big part of setting up what that culture was. It was the start of having an alternative to the mainstream, a yes. religious musical alternative. And obviously, now that is a huge, you know, money making machine. But Massive. at this point, it was kind of like the. The way I, at least it's been told to me, it's kind of like rebellious, you know, to take yes. that secular music and then turn it into a thing about Jesus. It was a big deal. There, A lot of this stuff is going to come up as we talk, but just a couple things there. Yeah. Parallel institutions, which are a big part of how I understand even the Trump evangelical thing, that mm-hmm. evangelicals train themselves to utilize their own institutions parallel from the mainstream. So like, why do a bunch of Christians like Newsmax and trust it more than, you know, CNN or ABC news or something? That's part of the explanation is that they trained themselves to, to listen to focus on the family rather than other childhood experts, you know, and, and stuff like that. And then the other thing about it being it's starting rebellious but it ends up as the infrastructure for CCM, contemporary Christian music, the least rebellious form of music ever created by <laughs> humanity. Yeah, uh, It's a lot like the Christian punk, hardcore, and ska scene that you and I grew up in, but it's 25 mm-hmm. years before that. So there's a bunch of interesting parallels there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit autobiographically here. Okay. How much of this music – so we're talking roughly 1968 is when it really gets going, and we're kind of cutting it off around 78, pre the massive contemporary Christian music, the CCM sort of explosion. But right at the beginning there, how much of this music were you raised with from this era? Mm, some. I, I have certainly – Larry Norman was big mm-hmm. in our household, and I feel like – the music that surrounded him was talked about, but my memories of Christian music and like what was a big deal in our house was much more like Rich Mullins and Amy Grant. Yeah. So we were texting about this and I was like, give me a couple songs to play. And you said, Amy Grant, lead me on and Rich Mullins, awesome God. I just want to say that like, I, there was no hesitation on the songs that I texted. I texted you back immediately. I was like, no, I know. These are the songs of my childhood. These like, are oh, them, Michael yeah. Do- and Michael W. Smith's Friends are Friends Forever. Friends are Friends Forever. That's right. Well, I picked yeah. two. I left Michael W. Smith off. I don't know. I I guess I don't know why. Here's, Maybe I can. Okay, can- here's the thing. The only reason why that song. So we moved a lot when I was growing up. But the, our big, big, big move is we lived in Northern California and my dad was a youth pastor at the time, and then he took a job at a church in Anchorage, Alaska. And so when we left Northern California, our youth group sang Friends Are Friends Forever to oh our family. Gosh. And there's so many tears. There's a lot of tears. So that song was like, and then of course, as an angsty, like eight-year-old, I think is how old I was when I moved, which is funny because I have an eight-year-old and she's angsty and listens to music in her room. And um Oh. Anyways, it's pretty cute. She's really into music right now. She watched the Grammys the other night. She loves the Grammys. Loves oh the Grammys. Oh my gosh. Um, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, I would just listen to Friends Are Friends forever in my room, in my new room in Anchorage, Alaska, and I would just cry. <laughs> I mean, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna not play it now that we have that background. So <laughs> I'm just imagining you. You know, are are you you got to take a flight or do you have like a the church van or what are where are you saying goodbye and and people are hugging you and like give me, give us the context for this song and what you associate it with. It was our last service at our church in uh, Citrus Heights, California, and it was just like a very of all the church experiences I had growing up, this one felt the most wholesome. There was not drama. There was we didn't leave on bad terms. Yeah. People weren't 
you know, this is again, because like when we became teenagers, then it's like, and I start listening to punk and I dye my hair blonde, right. then all the parents in church are like, Ooh, you're, you know, telling my parents that are, that we're like worshiping Satan and stuff. This is long before that. And that church was just like really time. good to my, a simpler <laughs> time. And we had gone through some really intense stuff and I, uh, my older brother passed away when we were at this mm. church, we were in, my family was in a horrible car accident. And so that church had supported my family through that wow. really traumatic time. And so it was, it was really, so like that song is yeah. emotional enough as it is, but I can see now how people listen to friends are friends forever and think it's just total cornball, which it is. Well, but when, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely, which is probably cornball. why I was like, ah, let's just leave that one off. But right, this story right. is incredible. And this is kind of what I'm after all the time. So I'm glad to, I'm glad for you to kind of fill that out a little bit. But yeah, so the youth group sang it to our family to like send us off and let us know like you'll be our friends forever. And weirdly enough, I will say my parents are still pretty close with like several families from that church. My parents still keep in contact with them, you know, what is it, 30 some odd years later. So yeah, wow. it was a really impactful place for us. And old Michael W., he uh, sealed the deal, I guess. <laughs> Let's hear it. Friends are friends forever. This is from the album Change Your World. I can understand. Like, I'm trying to put myself in this moment in time for you guys and not be like a, a cynical ass about it, you know? And it's yeah. it's powerful. I mean, like, especially, you know, the accident, your brother. And uh, there, we, we hear so many stories of church tenures for pastors ending poorly, ending on bad notes that like – it's it's just really nice. It's actually kind of a nice way to get the episode kicked off. Like you had a good experience leaving yeah. a church and going to another one with this song. Like, oh, that's that's great. Yeah, they kind of sent us off into our next thing. And I think that that holding on there like the parts of evangelicalism that I still really appreciate are like the hopeful parts, the hope of heaven and like the, those that strong bond that you have. And so I think that that song has a lot of those themes as cheesy as that might be, but mm -hmm. it was very meaningful to us in that moment in our life. So, yeah. Totally. Let's get a little more sonic context here. So let's hear the Amy Grant and Rich Mullins tracks. And then I'll talk a little bit about how I think that plays into the 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 10-year period that we're mostly going to be focusing on. So here's Awesome God by Rich Mullins, 1988. I got to end that early. That song is giving me the creeps. I don't know why. I don't often get like triggered by stuff from my youth group past or whatever, but that song is making me feel bad inside right now for some reason. How, what, what was your reaction to hearing it? I mean, I think that song slaps. That's I mean, it's a great, I mean it's a great pop song. For sure. Right. And I love the beginning, the like, when he rolls up his sleeve and just puts yeah. it on the Ritz. Like, what? I, was, I don't even yes. know what that I, Whatever means. that means. Like, I, when I was prepping, by the way, for this yesterday and, and throwing in your songs and and uh, and Jaffrey, uh, my wife, did not know what I was working on. She First of all, she came in and she's like, what are you listening to? And I was like, <laughs> I'm prepping for tomorrow. And then when I got to that song later, like her, her workspace is, is over. And so she can sometimes kind of hear what I'm playing. She just texted me when he rolls up his sleeves. He ain't just putting on the wrist. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's funny because. I picked up a mug at Goodwill several months ago. I actually was in Goodwill, saw this mug, and it's a horrible, ugly mug. And it says, our dog is an awesome dog on the side of it. <laughs> and I let I took a picture of it, sent it to my sisters, left it, and then immediately kicked myself that I didn't buy it. So I went back and I bought it. And I was like, the person who made and designed this mug has to be a Christian, right? Like, you can't just say that without knowing that. I was like, there's no way for me to see this mug and not hear it. 
So I tweeted it with like the picture of the mug yeah. with like he reigns from heaven above and it went very, very viral for some reason. It just like people would just thought it was hilarious. They wow. like went. But what I learned from that, I didn't realize is that like they're decidedly two camps of people with that song. It's the Rich Mullins camp or the Kirk Franklin and the fam camp. I didn't even know Kirk Franklin did a version of that song. I, like, think I was not find it. Yeah, it was it was very surprising to me to realize that like like so many people were tweeting like, oh, I didn't know white people knew this song. And I was like, oh, oh, to me, this is like the ultimate white person song. So like there's there's two very different. That version sounded like the fucking Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It's about as white as it gets. (laughs) It's as white. Yeah, I was like, I was raised on the white. The the Rich Mullins version is like if you took. Uh, middle-aged church choir and then put them in the studio with Phil Collins as producer and tried to make <laughs> yes. a hit song together. Oh my gosh, it's extremely yes. white. All right, let's hear Kirk Franklin. So this is his version. It's actually called He Reigns slash Awesome God. God bless anything tested. Jesus Christ said, time. No, all the crew. No, for Jesus Christ. Lift them high. I'm not here for Christ. Okay, before we've even gotten into the track, we are already noticing some <laughs> pronounced some differences. Slight differences. Slight differences. <laughs> well, this is good, actually, because one of the things, one of the themes we're going to talk about later is there's a time when black and white uh, Christian artists could have sort of decided to come together and industry wide and, and really probably listenership wide, they really decided to stay separate. There's sort of a unless you were DC talk unless you do. Well, and there's a few crossovers and whatnot. Right. And there right. are a couple, but sort not of, much, not but much. not much. Um, and really the sort of we'll get to it, but the gospel thing kind of goes its own direction. So here's let's let's get to where we've actually got some of the lyrics here for Kirk Franklin's version. He reigns slash awesome. God, almost like a like a hip hop artist would sample Sly and the Family mm-hmm. Stone or something like, it's like that. A, it's like a remix, maybe a remix or like the police for P. Diddy and mm. after Biggie died. Okay, what the hell? My mind is blown. Why were we not raised with this kind of Christian music? We were robbed. We were robbed. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Doesn't even sound like the same song. <laughs> so this is the rebirth of Kirk Franklin, 2002. He throws that okay. out there. All right. And it is well. one of the two most popular tracks on that record, according to Apple Music. Well, okay. So that was a fun little detour. Uh, I'll, I'll save some more comments about that for when we get into Andre Crouch, because that's where it's going to, uh, we're going to come to Jesus around the racial disparity in Christian <laughs> music. Um Let's talk. Let's hear "Lead Me On" by Amy Grant. This is your other 1988 track that you really uh, associate with your childhood. Singing to the Holy One. Lead me on, lead me on to a place where the Where's that taking you? Um, whew, gives me the chills, honestly. <laughs> like, first of all, I love that Amy Grant is an alto. Like, I love that she made it with the level of success that she has with kind of having a lower ranged voice. She's not a she's not Mariah Carey, right? Exactly. Yeah. But that song, maybe it's not fully about, but has themes of it's uh, Corey Ten Boom and the Holocaust. Oh, wow. Earlier in the verses, she mentions, I believe, Star of David and people getting like loaded onto trains, not knowing where they're going. So it's pretty freaking wow. dark. Like, yeah. and I was also, I was a little bit of a dark emo child. And so um, uh, reading Corey Ten Boom, like The Hiding Place was 
hugely impactful for me. Right. And later on, when I was like in junior high, I ended up checking out every single book in our uh, library. We had moved to Cody, Wyoming at this point. It was a very small public library, but that place was my best friend. I love the library. And I checked out every book on the Holocaust in our library and read them all. And I don't know if Amy's the one who started all of that, but wow. I just, I mean, now looking at like an evangelical Christian woman making a song about the Holocaust. I have, I do have questions about, I mean, I get it. Like we were, it was a big deal to all of us who talked about it, but yeah. I was like, I don't, you know, I have questions now, but it's still, it's a good song. I love that song. And I can't, t- I can't tell if that's all nostalgia at this point. It probably is, but that's fine. I don't know. It's, it's, it's catchy. The production, like if you're into that kind of late eighties thing, it's, it's pretty dialed in. Well, it certainly had like a uh, kind of U2 vibes, the guitars, yeah. It gave me that vibe, which I also like U2 was huge in my household again because they were like a couple years after Joshua Tree or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It was like Christian female Joshua Tree and Joshua Tree is still, you know, that album oh, yeah. also has huge nostalgia. But, mm-hmm. you know, we listened to that a ton when I was a kid. So, yeah. Pantheon. So I did not grow up on this music. Uh, CCM music in general. I was allowed to listen to Christian music and secular music. I've talked about that a lot on, I think probably on both podcasts actually. So I don't know the Amy Grant stuff. Um, I did know Rich Mullins because I knew Awesome God because we sang it in church. And Mm -hmm. I actually, some of these Maranatha songs, not necessarily ones that we're going to hear today, but songs that come out of that, the Maranatha Southern California late 60s, early 70s movement, a lot of those made it into our church as well. So I know them through congregational singing, but I was not raised on really almost any of the recordings that we are going to hear today, including Mm -hmm. either of those or any of those three uh, that we heard. So it's been interesting to kind of come to it as a little bit of an outsider, right? But I was raised fully evangelical. And so the way in which this music does connect besides just hearing it in church was that it really informed the larger evangelical cultural zeitgeist, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, what turned me into a spiritual abuse researcher is, for instance, the way that end times teachings were utilized in that world and, and the, the you know quite traumatic effects it had on me as a kid. We've talked about some of that together. I mean, we my have, sister yeah. came on and talked about our our mid trib upbringing. You, I, I now I remember the title of that patron episode was Martyrdom Expectations. Oh God, <laughs> which is quite a bit more, uh, you know, deeper, thicker mud there than even just the Rapture coming. So you know, this music, though not the soundtrack to my childhood, it informs the community that has sort of launched me in the direction of my academic work, a lot of my podcasting and sort of public facing work. So it's actually been really, really cool to dig back into this stuff and use it as a lens for better understanding that phenomenon. Because the Jesus movement, if people don't know, that really is the group of people that becomes white evangelical Protestants in America. They are the group that voted for Donald Trump at 80%. You know, in 2016 and 2020, they are the group uh, that within a year of the high, within a decade of the height of the Jesus movement, they helped carry Reagan to the presidency in 1980. I mean, these are literally the same people. Which is so wild to me because it seemed like a bunch of Christian hippies. That's what it was. And that's why my mom loved them or what I was told about them is basically that they were the again, these Christian rebels. And and so just the fact that like and then it took a real quick Real quick turn. I have some questions that I'm kind of tracking. I have been tracking them as I've done the research, and I will be tracking them. I put a little note up as we listen and sort of talk through what we're hearing. Basically, three things. The first is just how much of this music would I end up loving? Spoiler alert, I do love a lot of it. And it'll be fun to see what you respond to versus what I respond to. But the other questions are a bit more kind of you have permission type questions. They're more sociological. So like, I'm curious about the role that this music has played in the plausibility structures of so many baby boomers, assuming that Jesus would be returning any day uh, mm-hmm. in the late 60s and early 70s. But then again in the 90s with with Left Behind and really kind of unbroken through that time, I think you see a little falling off of that in the last 15 years where culture war issues have become more important than predicting mm-hmm. the end of the world. But 
that was just so much in, in the sauce of my upbringing. And I'm curious what role the music played because the music is exploding at exactly the same time in history that Hal Lindsey's late great planet earth becomes a national bestseller. Really? They're just co-occurring and there are themes of this stuff in a lot of these songs lyrically. So that's interesting. Yeah. The other thing I'm looking for is clues to how a pretty radical and seemingly quite left-leaning Jesus-focused movement could have drifted rightward so thoroughly in only seven or eight years to basically bring Reagan the presidency. That's the other thing I'm kind of looking at. Yeah, that, that blows my mind a little bit. I'm very curious about that. I'll ask you again at the end, see what has come up or we can talk about it as we go. Like if, if you are seeing some clues around there. Uh, and so, yeah, that, those are the things I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking for as we listen and talk. Also, can I, I don't know if this is like the time to say it, but it's you just saying those questions, like the thought in my mind on my podcast, we recently were talking about sort of this end of the world narrative that Christians had and was really a way for Christians not to take care of the environment or like care about the earth because it's not going to be around because Jesus is coming back. Like, so it doesn't matter, which is so interesting that, that now where we have all this climate change reality and Christians are like, oh no, that's not real. And I'm like, how, okay. It's just, a just have been thinking about this recently, just like how those narratives about the end of the world were so big and they're not anymore when the reality, I mean, not, I, I don't think that climate change is necessarily ushering in an, the end of the world, but it does have some, you know, apocalyptic feelings. And certainly you would think would prompt people to action, but. I failed to mention your podcast earlier. It's called the Holy Ghosting, which is incredible. <laughs> Uh, And yes, there are like, that's kind of one of the most interesting sort of secular angles on the sort of apocalypticism of our youth is to bring it into conversation around climate change and the various ways that people who are concerned with climate change message it. And some of them message it in in a way that very much reminds me of the way that, you know, panicked evangelicals messaged Jesus's return. Which I think can be like really triggering for some of us. Like it's when you were kind of raised with those, like a lot of that fear based mentality. And then you hear come those same messages. It's, it's, it feels like there's a lot of anxiety around it for sure. Oh yeah. We have an absolute killer exclusive patron episode this week. Meredith Ann Miller from episode 174, Helping Kids Know God in Healthy Ways. She is an excellent Instagram follow. She was an excellent interview guest. And she's back talking with me about what Christian Smith, the sociologist, and his team have coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. This is basically the kind of pop theological understanding of God by the average American teenager in the West, or at least in in the US, perhaps Canada as well. Maybe Australia? I'm not sure. Anyway, it's very it's very widespread. It's a it's a very kind of milk toast, watered down Protestantism, kind of. And we go through each bullet point of moralistic therapeutic deism, and we sort of wonder whether each of these is a concerning thing for our children or not so concerning. You know, where is this uh, really to be combated and where is it uh, perhaps even benign or beneficial for our kids? That's a really fun conversation. And we get into uh, the weeds a little bit theologically, psychologically, sociologically. So fantastic conversation. I know that those of us raising kids who want to do it with some sort of Christian tradition, we find work, uh, the work by Meredith and people like her so helpful, myself included. So check that out. And if you want access to at least two of these exclusive episodes, as well as unedited and ad-free versions of the main feed episodes, as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group, you can head to patreon.com slash dancoke. It's just five bucks a month. I'm not trying to shake anybody down. Jaffrey and I have been watching Perry Mason recently on HBO, and there is a really interesting sort of side plot um, with this uh, Amy McPherson-type character, the woman who founded Foursquare Church, 
and you know they're doing radio stuff and and they sell they rent benches in their sanctuary and the financial stuff around it is just kind of shitty and shady and it's been interesting to think about um you know i don't i don't think i do that i'm i'm just asking for five bucks you know it's it's a starbucks a month I know that's like such a cliche way of thinking about how much this stuff costs, but I like that I'm not really asking people for a lot of money. I'm just asking like, hey, if you find this valuable, would you support it some? And then if enough people do that, it can be, you know, at some point, maybe even a full-time job for me. And that would be so rad. So anyway, I'm very grateful to you guys for the support. This is a very long ad. It's getting into veering into Dan Corner. And now that's making me uncomfortable. So let's get back. To, <laughs> to talking about Jesus movement music. All right, let's do it. Well, let's uh, let's do a little bit of sociology, a, a little bit to, to sort of set this up. This is probably more, we, there's more of this kind of talking about ideas and, and movements than I normally do on Pretty Good Vibrations, but this is sort of the you have permission part of me coming out. So the Jesus movement, the thing that we call that, it really lasted from the late 60s to the mid 70s. It's not very long. It's really less than a decade. It peaks around 71, 72. There's a Time Magazine cover story in 1971. And they are on the cover of Time. You've probably seen it. It's like a, a 60s psychedelic looking sort of portrait of Jesus. And mm-hmm. there's a huge Woodstock festival in Dallas in 1972 the two numbers I've seen for attendees are 85,000 and 200,000. Uh, the 200,000, I think, is the more recent figure. So I think that's the more realistic one, but massive. It's a Billy Graham, Johnny Cash thing. We're going to talk about it when we get to that point in the chronology. But for our purposes, what's interesting is the central place that the music played in the Jesus movement. So I'm going to be pulling here from historian Larry Eskridge. I believe he's at Wheaton College, and he has a book called God's Forever Family about uh, the Jesus movement. Here's a quote. It's hard to imagine a Jesus movement without there having been Jesus music, end quote. It's so central in part because music was central to youth culture in the 60s and 70s. If you were going to have a youth movement from 1967 to 1975, it was going to be focused on music, right? And so what the there was a lot of energy, a lot of sort of what we would consider like, you know, scene building, right? Like in our punk and ska and hardcore scenes, like there was energy from the youth. They wrote their own songs. They they would rather sing their own brand new written songs than sing from their parents' hymnal. They drew on rock, pop, and folk to write these songs. Uh, Eskridge says they, quote, used the songs as an evangelistic tool to enhance their worship and as a form of sanctified musical entertainment. It was a baptized version of popular music, end quote. Ooh, baptized. Yes, exactly. So in terms of putting this, the last thing I'll say in the timeline here is by the mid and late 70s, we've really got infrastructure that these Jesus freaks have created to coalesce into what is now CCM, contemporary Christian music. But in the early mm-hmm. years, that infrastructure does not exist at all. It is, it's much more like Discord Records and Minor Threat and Bad Brains and stuff, you know, or SST out of LA with Black Flag, like just, just doing shit. That's a lot more what it's like for the first five, six years, which is its own kind of interesting thing to me. And there wasn't, it's not really credited as any one person starting this movement. It's kind of just a bunch of people in it. Yes. The Jesus move, the Jesus movement, the kind of the main vein of it, you know, there's, you could talk about Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. They were sort of, they came together, the two of them and, and sort of launched that movement ecclesiologically, we might say at the church level, but musically Mm -hmm. it's more spread out. And that's the cool thing about, about art is I'm going to start tracing from the fifties and into the mid sixties and kind of, you know, there are little trickles of these things that these Jesus freaks in throughout the country pick up on um, that are like hinting at a kind of Christian popular music before it really exists. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more before we get into the songs about what I understand to be a typical member 
of the early Jesus movement. And by the way, I ran this by a sociologist of religion, I know, to make sure that it is fairly accurate. Okay. Okay. And we're going to start answering that second question about how did this seemingly radical left-leaning thing become Reagan eight years later, right? Yeah. Let's call this guy Frank. So Frank, not every Jesus movement person is going to check all these boxes, but most of them would probably check most of these boxes. Frank is born, we'll say, in LA in 1950. He's born to either a Catholic or a mainline Protestant family. Let's say he's Methodist, but he could be Southern Baptist, could be Episcopal, could be Lutheran. His parents attend church regularly, but they're not particularly pious. This is important. Meeting Jesus is going to feel like real religion to him versus what he was raised with. Mm, Okay. His parents support the war in Vietnam. His parents were skeptical about the civil rights movement at the time. Uh, His parents seem to be allergic to all things youth culture. They don't like the long hair. They don't like the guitar-based music. They certainly don't like the drug use and the widespread widespread sexual activity. His parents are, in effect, part of the establishment, right? But Frank, along with all his friends, is fundamentally anti-institutional. He doesn't like the war in Vietnam, but he's not protesting it. Mm. He theoretically is open to the civil rights movement, but he has not gone on a bus to Alabama. Frank Mm -hmm. is not a radical, okay? Right. He is aesthetically a hippie. Frank is a is a middle class white teenager. Is what it yes, is. but That's, in 1968, yeah. right? So that right. means yeah. he's yeah. got long hair. He wears sandals. He prefers rock and folk music, but he's not mm-hmm. a radical. He's more likely to end up in Orange County, like in Anaheim, than he is to move up to Berkeley or Oakland. Put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So he's used a little bit of drugs, found the experience wanting, didn't lead him to transcendence. He's heard a lot of horror stories from people who use too many drugs, fried their brains. He's not as uptight as his parents are about sexuality. Like there's really interesting footage of Jesus freaks on the beach in LA passing out flyers for like church services and the women are wearing bikinis. They're Mm, not covered up in purity culture garb. So they're they're at this moment. There's a real distinction between how they view sex. For now, wait till they have kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but for now, well, there's yeah. a there's yeah. a difference, right? But he's but they're not all about free love. Frank's not a free love guy. He's yeah. he's he's just like oh, my parents are so uptight. Personality wise, he's probably a little right of center. He will be a Republican within eight years. He's going to have a couple of kids with a sweet young woman that he meets at a second chapter of Acts or a Larry Norman concert in mm-hmm. the next five years. He's got a sense that things are quite bad in the world and getting worse. And in this way, he's in agreement with almost everyone else living in the early 70s. That's hard for us to keep in mind. Everyone thought stuff was going to shit worldwide. That's why the end of the world predictions seem so plausible to people, right? He also feels the world has gotten so complex and he yearns for something simple, true, loving, and good. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. In parentheses, as viewed through essentially fundamentalist Baptist theology. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. This is not the real Jesus of Nazareth, the actual person who lived. It's not Jesus as he would have been understood by Israelites in the first century. It's Jesus as understood through fundamentally, fundamentally a Southern Baptist perspective. But it is a long-haired, sandal-wearing, social prophet Mm -hmm. type who preaches love. So there are... You know, there's these ways in. I'm trying to understand what I have done this if I were that age at that time. And it's as I research this stuff, it's becoming a bit more clear to me how that would have seemed like a really plausible way to go. 100%. Yeah. Any it, thoughts on that? That That's my Frank. That's the end of our describing Frank section. I think you painted a really great picture. And I think it makes sense how people would want to. Well, I mean, the girls in bikinis, is, that's really throwing me off. I was like, uh, that was yeah. real different. By the time I was a Christian teenager getting into music, that was. <laughs> yes, very <laughs> so different. good for them. I'm glad they had that they had a moment. small <laughs> moment without purity culture. Good for them. They had a, a few shame-free years there for their about their yeah. bodies. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that for them. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the timeline. Basically, we're, we're going to be talking through... Uh, We're starting in the 50s with a little bit of background, and we're going through 1978, and we're just going to go chronologically and sort of talk about things as we hear them. So in the 50s, think back to the future. Marty McFly shows up. 
He's playing rock and roll. It's too loud. He's like, you guys aren't ready for this, but your parents are going to love it or whatever. Your kids are going to love it, rather. In the 50s, in American culture, evangelicals are among the loudest critics of the rock and roll phenomenon. There's all kinds of news stories you can find about, you know, police getting involved and, and local laws being passed to keep certain kinds of music being played in the community and all this stuff. In 1960, Billy Graham says on an, in an interview with someone, if I were 17 today, I'd stay as far away from rock and roll as I could. That's a Billy Graham quote from 1960. I mean, not much, not much has changed, let me tell you. I mean, did you see the tweets about the Sam Smith at the Grammys? Like, you know, every year there's someone at the Grammys that's channeling Satan, according to Ted Cruz. So, you know, it's <laughs> something's never changed. The, I think the thing that never changes there is conservative personalities and a conservative outlook on the world will always find the sort of bleeding edge artists to be problematic and scary and to be harbingers of evil forces in the world. But in 1965, Billy Graham hires Ralph Carmichael, a devout Christian who'd worked with Sinatra and Nat King Cole to write music for a film that Billy Graham produced, like a, a fiction, like a feature film called The Restless Ones. And he utilizes jazz, pop, and even some Western vibes in the, the theme music for the film. So here's a clip from the soundtrack of The Restless Ones. What do you think about that? Well, it's a, it's a pretty banging song. I, it's it, kind of cool. It feels, it's really cinematic, too. It definitely has that, like, I see, like, a desert scape kind of feeling. Like, yeah, it's great. What I think we lose being our age is if you go back at the pop charts, like, in the mid and late 60s, there are a ton of movie themes that get played on Top 40 radio. So we might go, okay, so he hired this guy to work on a soundtrack, but that's just like movies, but movie themes were pop music, right? You know, Morricone's scores, good and the bad and the ugly is like a top 10 track from that year, right? Like this stuff, um, was really in popular culture. So this is interesting. Billy Graham dipping his toe in going, okay, mm -hmm. we can hire this guy. He's a Christian. Okay. So then, uh, still 1965 cam Floria. And the Continental Singers. It's got a little bit of a film score vibe and this kind of orchestra-led pop that you might have expected in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. So this is appealing, again, pop music for, like, parents at this time. But it's got scripture-based lyrics. This is More Than Conquerors. This is, Rich Mullins is pulling from that for Awesome God. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, that's definitely getting into cheesier territory. Yes. We are more. Yes. But, but exactly. That's exactly the point. It's getting into adult-oriented orchestra pop. Yeah. Right? It's not church music exactly, but it's no. got that choral thing. So it's we're just starting to like, oh, okay, interesting, you know? Well, it feels like you could see them performing on like one of those variety shows back. That feels like a very television. I can see them like holding the microphones and, you know, yes. ble blessing an audience with their performance. Exactly. Okay. And then one more item from 1965. Now we're switching over to the kind of countercultural lane. And this is Barry Maguire, not yet a Christian, who puts out a song called Eve of Destruction. It's a song about war and potential nuclear calamity. So think the apocalypticism of the early Jesus movement. Uh, this was a hit song. Um, this is Eve of Destruction. The Eastern world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill. But not for voting, you don't believe in war, 
boards that gun you're toting And even the Jordan River has bodies floating But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction Yes, the little harmonica there. Oh, the little great. Dylan harmonica. It's a great track. Yeah. It was like a grittier, darker yes. Dylan with a less nasally voice. Let's it's be dark. Like the, the current version on uh, on Apple Music is from the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary. Oh, and wait, what was that guy's name that we just listened to? Uh, Barry Maguire. He's going to he's going to come back Maguire. in. Barry Maguire. OK, I don't know this person. He's yeah, he's he's a big deal in this story. But at this point, he's not yet a Christian. He's just got this kind of apocalyptic concern, you know, very much. It's 1965. Mm-hmm. It's of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also hear like, oh, he's got a legit musical sensibility. Like he is a professional mm-hmm. musician mm-hmm. doing a cool track, you know? Yeah. Well, and I can see how that could trans like the his building and now knowing what i know especially of ccm and worship music and the things that make you feel i'm like oh i could see how he could take that and just insert god right into that mix i just can't wait till we get to cosmic cowboy uh, 1978 <laughs> i think all right that's toward the end all right barry but barry's gonna come back in okay 1968 we're skipping ahead three years now we are really getting uh the beginning here um, we're going to talk about two bands here in 1968. The first is actually Andre Crouch and the Disciples, who we mm. we talked about earlier. So here is The Blood Will Never Lose Its Power by Andre Crouch and the Disciples. It soothes my doubts And it calms my fears And that same love dries on of my tears Oh, the blood That gives me strength From day To day It will never Lose It's power oh, That is some smooth Jesus music That was, yeah What a crooner I mean, he's incredible as an artist uh, and really stands out in this field. And I, I mean, already just with that and the Kirk Franklin track that we heard, I think that one of the things you and I are going to come away with is like, we really like a lot of this stuff, but man, why did we have to miss out on the black Christian yeah. music? Why were we not raised on any of it? Yes. I just don't get it. So this is the first example. I mean, I do get it. I do get get it. it. I know. Everything (laughs) since has explained it to us. (laughs) Okay. But this is really where, so there's a good documentary called The Jesus Music that's on Hulu produced by Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, executive produced by them. They're both in it. And they talk about Andre Crouch as really the, the moment when Christian music as a whole had the opportunity to integrate and what they said is essentially it chose not to. It chose not to racially integrate. So what you get really starting with Andre Crouch and maybe a couple other of these early artists, late 60s, is you start to have gospel music branch off and develop on its own parallel mm-hmm. to the Jesus movement, which is primarily white, more folk, more pop and rock. And there's very little crossover from 1968 on. And that's true today in 2023. Yeah, forever. Yeah, forever. That's just not changed in Christian music. And this is where you can really hear it branch. Uh, He's so good, though, that some of his tracks sort of push their way in to the to the chronology Mm -hmm. from various accounts you read. So he is going to we are going to hear a little bit more from Andre Crouch throughout because he's kind of one of the artists that still, for some reason, managed to kind of break through. But infrastructure wise, they just they started going separate. That's something that's worth mentioning here is that most of what we're hearing is about the white branch because that's the group that became white evangelical Protestants. And that's the group I'm interested in and where it ends up going, which we will also track over time um, as we listen is it eventually separates out from the general market and Christian music creates its own commercial and social silo that it will operate in separate. But historically This is way, way less common in black music, right? So rock and roll, soul, and R&B 
all explicitly come from black church music culture. That is where they are Mm -hmm. developed sonically, genre wise. So like Sam Cooke, for instance, got his start in the Soul Stirrers singing gospel tunes. This is my favorite Soul Stirrers track. It's called Touch the Hem of His Garment. Whoa, there was a woman in the Bible days. She had been sick, sick so very long. But she heard my Jesus was passing by. So she joined the gathering throng. And while she was pushing her way through, someone asked her, what are you trying to do? She said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. Or for instance, Marvin Gaye's impeccable all-time Rushmore album, What's Going On, contains songs that are explicitly prayers to God, like Holy Holy, which has lyrics like, believe in Jesus, Jesus left a long time ago, said he would return, believe it, unquote. So here's Holy Holy from What's Going On. We should believe in one another Jesus left a long time ago Said he would return He left us a book to believe in In it we've got a lot to learn So it's just so different, right? Like in black music, it's just not the same sort of separation of church and state, so to speak, that we have. Well, they also sing about sex and getting it on. And so, you know, therefore they can't really be Christians. (laughs) They're not really singing about Jesus. So that's probably why I didn't listen to a lot of this stuff because it it was, you had to be all in, all of your songs had to be about Jesus. Yeah. I mean, even Amy Grant, when she released her like love out, when Heart in Motion came out, people turned on her because she wasn't singing about Jesus. And that was a problem. Yeah. Yes. It, it, so it's, there's so many layers to this and other episodes have probably tackled this better, you know, on you of permission around what's going on with the way that white Christian culture views black Christian culture and all of that. Yeah. And we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. It's not a pretty picture. It, it might be the darkest chapter of Christianity in America, sort of his, historically, is the way that uh, white Christians have treated racial questions. But musically... I'm just kind of sitting here bummed, you know, like, ah, sort of like giving up our birthright for a bowl of soup like Esau, you know? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, all this stuff is good. And I I didn't hear so much of it until until now. And that's a bummer. You're right. Okay, well, moving on to the whites, uh, starting in (laughs) 1968. But playing through 71 is a band called The Excursions. They were a, quote, saved psychedelic blues rock trio, unquote. Hell yes. Involved with inner varsity. Here's their track, Dry Ground. you got to put your thoughts to actions. Get them off the ground. Got to know just where I stand. Am I a mouse or am I a man? Can I do what's got to be done? Got to look up that's open the sun that shine. Kind of hell yeah. Yeah. That's a cool. You, I hear some Jimi Hendrix in there. I hear some MC5 uh-huh. in there. I just want to know, like, were they just like high on the Lord when they wrote that? Like, if they're psychedelic and they're not using psychedelics to write that, yeah. it sounds very much like drug fueled music to me. But knowing what I know about, you know, the Jesus movement, it was not fueled by that. So. I think they probably developed the sound, you know, first. And maybe they were using the drugs, maybe not so much, but it certainly got the that kind of fast and I don't know, it's like a, it's an updated late sixties kind of blues template, much like a lot of the Jimi Hendrix stuff. Right. And, but yeah, they're, they're high on God when they're making that record in 68. (laughs) Okay. We're moving to 1969. We are starting to get the folk music sort of how that's going to collide with the Jesus movement. So here are the Spurlow singers their album now, uh, this is basically Peter, Paul, and Mary style folk, but straight up Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song's called He's Everything to Me. I'm 
chuckling i don't know that's so just so corny <laughs> it could be on the like that would be the like square band on inside lewin davis that like is opening for him at the open mic in greenwich village <laughs> yeah it was pretty square <laughs> very square but that's kind of but back to that question how did these quote-unquote radicals vote for reagan they're they weren't radicals they just were youth maybe that's the simplest way they were just young they weren't yeah. liberal. Does that make sense? Is that the is that a, like a tight way to say it? It seems like a lot of them weren't doing anything like new or actually like risky or rebellious. They were just taking something that existed and applying a Jesus filter to it. Yeah, I mean, the true musical inner innovators of Western, you know, I don't know, pop music history. Like, there, it's not like there's a million of them, right? Most artists, right, are taking right, of course. It's I just think I like that one because that's kind of like that's how I imagine the early Christian music is like that straight, like really chill, harmonically rich folk music. You're just kind of swaying along to it. It doesn't. Yeah, it's just very it's just there. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. Okay. another song that kind of breaks through in 69 is John Fisher, his solo record, Cold Cathedral. Uh, And this is his song, Lord's Prayer. So that's kind of like I'm getting real my dad and my father-in-law vibes there. John Denver vibes. Yes. It's like we're going to take that approach, but we're going to really just put scripture to music in a way that just reminds me of so much of the church music I heard growing up. That song, I'm sure that was played at like church camps. Like that feels like a church camp. We're sitting around the fire and we're just like meditating on the Lord. It's that kind of vibe. And I don't know as much about sort of the Catholic history here, but when I've been to Catholic mass at so-called contemporary music services versus the sort of chamber music, the the organ and the choir and all that, it sounds like this. I think there was mm. a corresponding sort of music revolution within the Catholic church that sort of coincides with Vatican II in the sixties. And, you know, this kind of opening the church up to more aesthetic influences. And so they had their own sort of Maranatha movement. That just tells me that like, this was a really strong sort of youth force in American religion, even outside of the Jesus movement, because the Catholics were not really a part of the Jesus movement. They kind of have, they're kind of doing their own thing in those years. So that's really interesting. There's just a lot of gravitational pull for younger Christians to be drawing from the music of their day. Also in 1969, the band Agape forms around that mm. Costa Mesa crew. We don't, they're not going to record anything for two more years, but they're important, uh, an important name. Also 69, we get the first Larry Norman record. You mentioned Larry Norman as being one I of guess. these artists you grew yep. up with. T- tell us a little bit about Larry Norman before we hear him. I mean, I just remember he's got long blonde hair. He was like quintessential hippie. In my mind, he was like the Christian Woodstocker. Like he would play at festivals. I just feel like a lot of people rallied around him, his music. And he he talked to, I mean, he talked a lot about Jesus coming back and the end of the world. Oh, yeah. And we're going to get to I wish we'd all been ready in a couple years. Yeah. Yeah. That's the jam that is forever burned into my little brain. So my mom loved him, I think, for us. So my mom had a pretty like troubled childhood, did a fair amount of drugs, ran away from home, was into music, all that, but then got saved, ended up going to Bible college in California where she met my dad. And so she had this really interesting, cause my dad loved music and, um, I, 
we talked about this before, but you know, I grew up on, he made this mixtape called Greg's party faves. And it was this interesting kind of war between my parents. Like they, they say that, um, the biggest fight they ever got into is my mom sold all of my dad's records at a garage sale for like a dollar or something. And they were like Beatles records, you know, they were like legit Beatles, Beach Boys, all of that. And I think because of like her maybe association with like drugs and music and all that, she, my whole childhood only listened to Christian music, but she, she's a musician herself. My mom's an excellent, she plays guitar, uh, banjo and mandolin and some piano she sings. And so it was very interesting because I could tell she still loved music and, you know, like the Woodstock vibe, like that folksy, she loved folk music, but like only then had decided that that part of her life was like behind her and would only listen to Christian versions, which is why I think she was so into Larry Norman because he had some of that vibe. And again, at this time, like when I was a kid, this was the 80s. So there was not a lot of like good Christian folk music at this time that I know of. Um, Yeah, which is probably why she was into Rich Mullins. And even even Grant, her earlier stuff was certainly a lot more folky. So yeah, depending on who you ask, I think Larry Norman most often comes up as the most important figure in early Christian music. He yeah. was the first true rock star in Christian rock. Paul yeah, McCartney reportedly once told him you could be famous if you just dropped the God stuff. Yes, I remember that quote. Cool. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. So this is from his first uh, Christian record. And it's called the, the record is called Upon This Rock. And this song, Sweet, Sweet Song of Salvation, it's kind of a banger, man. I mean, you can understand that he was running with the big dogs uh, sonically here. And when you know a wonderful secret, you tell it to your friends. Because a lifetime filled with happiness is like a street that never ends. All right, sing that sweet, sweet song of salvation. And let your laughter fill the air. Sing that sweet, sweet song of salvation. Tell the people everywhere. It's good. Yeah, it's a whole vibe. It's a whole vibe. That's 1969. I mean, that sounds... There's this period where some of these records are really on par with a lot of the pop music of their day. I think as time goes on, that quality gap becomes more noticeable, but it's not always noticeable with some of these early bands. Yeah. I mean, the quality gap becomes more noticeable when it becomes a money-making machine and we're just churning out exact copies of secular this is more where people seem like there it there's a lot more creative freedom and we're Mm -hmm. not just like pulling people out and being like you you can be in a boy band super christian super group that's (laughs) like the backstreet boys or whatever you You could be in for him yeah right yeah or (laughs) what was the girl version god I don't remember. I was too cool. I was in my punk and ska face, so I didn't listen to any of that shit. But, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) I was aware that they existed. Okay, so one more thing from 1969, and then we're going to take a break before 1970. So in terms of trying to figure out how some of the infrastructure can start to get in place and sort of the interest from people who actually make, press, distribute, and advertise records, there was a musical called Tell It Like It Is – that was playing through 69 and 70. I think the record comes out in 70. It sells a half a million copies of its musical portfolio, like the song booklet that a that a, a school would buy to put on the play. So imagine those 500,000 paper copies, how many millions of people saw this musical. It's definitely multiplied. It's a huge, massive hit in the culture. And it's not quite psychedelic, but there's like, I'm, I'm going to play a clip from the original soundtrack. Uh, the song's called Pass It On. This was a minor hit on radio. It's got that psychedelic harpsichord in there, which is a mainstay of 60s music. Uh, here's Pass It On. It's flower showered, flower children type stuff, huh? 
Uh, you just like core memory unlocked. I forgot about that song. We used to sing that at summer camp. That was like a camp song. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know if it's a good song. Yeah. But, uh, it's a nostalgic song. How about that? Two years later would be Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical. So this is kind of, I think this is kind of like a, a proof of concept that you can do um, a big Broadway musical about Jesus. And mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus Christ Superstar 1971, that is really the height of the Jesus movement in general. So it's just kind of cool to to track some of these various threads. So this is coming from musical theater, but it's got crossover on the radio and, you know, all that stuff. So that's, uh, let's pass it on from Tell It Like It Is. Love it. So we've gotten through the 60s. It seems like a good time to take a break before we come back to the 70s. Um, so we'll either see you after the break or next week. I'm not really sure how I'm going to space these out. <laughs> but we're going to we're gonna come back to 1970. 